Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. When I set out to launch this podcast this past spring, I had three really important goals. I wanted to do a show that was differentiated from most. I wanted to hold discussions with truly remarkable, accomplished, and untraditional thinkers. And I wanted to do this for the purpose of directly challenging perceptions about what leadership practice actually drives the greatest performance in the 21st century workplace. So when it comes to today's podcast, I simply can't think of a guest who could be a more perfect match to these objectives, and I say this with absolutely no exaggeration. Getting right to it, let me tell you about Harvard Business School professor and luminary Francesca Gino. For starters, she's the author of a new bestseller called Rebel Talent, a book I found fascinating and which is going to be the focus of much of our conversation. And for over a decade, Francesca has been studying rebels in organizations all around the world. And while most of us tend to think of rebels as being, you know, troublemakers, outcasts, and people who deservedly end up with bad reputations, her research comes to a very different conclusion. Rebels are instead the masters of innovation and reinvention. They're the ones who change the world for the better with their unconventional outlooks. And instead of clinging to what is safe and familiar and falling back on routines and tradition, rebels excel by challenging and even defying the status quo. So if you leave the podcast today with just one takeaway, it's going to be that you simply cannot excel as a manager at any level if you don't see yourself as being a rebel leader. As a bit more background, Francesca is also the author of a book called Sidetracked, Why Our Decisions Get Derailed and How We Can Stick to the Plan. It's a book that's been translated into eight languages. And her research studies have been featured in The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Newsweek, Scientific American, Psychology Today, and in numerous top academic journals. While a professor at Harvard's Business School, she has additional roles at Harvard's Law School, along with the university's Mind, Brain, and Behavior Initiative. And she's done all of this while being named one of the top 40 U.S. professors under the age of 40. I am thrilled to be speaking with you, Francesca Gino, and welcome to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you, and I have so many questions that I just can't wait to ask you. But before we dive into your work, I'd love to learn a little bit about your journey from growing up in Italy to ending up a star professor at Harvard. And I'm always curious about people's upbringings and the influence on parents and how people arrived at you know, great successes. So tell us a little bit about what shaped your upbringing and how you got to be this star performer in Harvard University. First of all, thank you for the kind words. I grew up in a very small town in northern Italy in the mountains. And I like to tell people that to this date, if you go back where my parents live, which is the house where I grew up, if you want hot water, you need to ask for it. And somebody's going to go downstairs and put wood in the stove, and then you're going to get hot water a couple of hours later. And it was a small town, but my father always encouraged my brother, my sister and I to think beyond our small town. So it was fully supportive when at the age of 13, I said, I'd like to spend the summer working somewhere. And I had found an opportunity to actually work as a, an au pair in the UK. So it was a really interesting experience, an experience that really allowed me to learn something outside of my small town and something that also got me curious and intrigued by the English language. 
Now, fast forward many years later, I landed at Harvard almost by chance. I was part of a experimental PhD program in Italy. And as part of your dissertation, you had to go elsewhere. And coming from a very small town in Italy, one of the few universities that was known there is Harvard in Boston. And so it seemed like the obvious choice. And I came here with Didio staying for one year, but I found a really interesting people that I started working with. And so I basically never went back. I found my way to stick around and learn from the great minds that are around the campus at Harvard, but also in the Boston area more broadly. Well, two things that I heard. One is, and this is sort of a common denominator of high performing people that I've spoken to so far on this podcast, that the parents said, think big, and they encouraged you, which it literally means to give heart to people. So they're encouraging you to become more, to have something more than what you had. And but there's also some synchronicity in your lives too, right? In terms of just ending yeah. up there too. <laughs> a lot of randomness, I would say. And also, as you said, a lot of even courage, I would say, on the side of my parents. And now I have small children. And if I think about one of them being at the age of 13 and say, I'm going to go off for a summer on my own <laughs> with the family I've not met before to care for their children. I think it was very courageous as a choice to support it. And I think it was an important one because, again, it allowed me to see beyond the small town. But as you said, there is a lot of randomness. I think when I first landed at Harvard, I didn't quite understand the American systems of how university are ranked. So that was also random and helpful because it allowed me to reach out to people who I think are very famous and well-known for the work that they do, but I didn't quite realize who I was talking to. So lots of randomness and lots of help from other people and my parents being some of them. It's wonderful. And a little luck, right? I mean, exactly. I, <laughs> a lot of luck. You know, a lot of obviously, luck. we're not diminishing all the hard work and brilliance that you have. But I think, you know, this is a leadership podcast and parenting is a leadership role. So when you see people that are really thriving, it's always interesting to me, at least, to find out how they got there, because then you can model that with your own children and ideally set them up for, you know, magnificent success and happiness in their life. So very cool. I want to get to your book, Rebel Talent. And, you know, in my understanding of this, you're really seeking to reframe our understanding of what it means to be a rebel. And so while most of us see rebels as being society's troublemakers and criminals and outcasts, you have this whole different perspective. And you believe that rebels are actually the people who change the world. So help us starting this thing off here to reconcile our understanding of rebels with your view and why you firmly believe the future belongs to the rebel. As you said, we seem to have a very fixed idea of rebels in the business world. Usually people like Steve Jobs comes to mind, and it was definitely a visionary person, definitely very creative. But these rebels, at least the stories go, are creative, but also difficult to work with. Not the type of people that you like to have around or the type of people you want to work for or work with. And there is a real need to shift our thinking. To be a rebel does not mean to be a troublemaker. Effective rebels are people who break rules that hold them and others back. And they're doing so in a way that is constructive rather than destructive. And the difference to me is often in the delivery. 
Arrogance is in no way part of the rebel's playbook. Humility is. Recently, there was a student of mine, an older student, who reached out and said, I read the book. I totally buy into your message. I am, in fact, a rebel, but this is not working out for me. And so I got curious and I said, okay, tell me a little bit more. And we talked for a couple of hours and I really couldn't figure out what was not working for him because he seemed to be doing a lot of things that rebels, in fact, do. So I offered watching him during his work days for just a few days, just to be there and see what I could learn. And just after a couple of days, I looked at him and said, we need to sit down. (laughs) And I said, I understand why things are not working. And he was in the delivery. I think he was frustrated that the company wasn't really embracing rebelliousness, but the way he was rebelling was a bit arrogant in the way he interacted with others, in the way he interacted with his boss. And so there was an opportunity for him to rethink his approach and style. So often the difference between effective rebels and ineffective ones is the delivery, is the approach. It's a wonderful point. And it seems that probably what happened there is that he took the old model of what it means to be a rebel and sort of embraced your ideas, but then said, in order to apply it, I really have to be that sort of jerky guy. And that backfired on him and you corrected him. So that's a great way to start this. And you have some really wonderful stories in your book. And one of them, you described this experiment where I think you did with the group of students and they were presented with two different descriptions of a college professor. So these are just images. Mm -hmm. The first fictional professor was this 45 year old man wearing a t-shirt and a beard. And the second professor was a clean shaven man wearing a tie. And what you found is that the students ended up giving a higher status to the t-shirt and beard guy because his nonconformity stood out. But coming from traditional workplaces, can we all really succeed by going against the conventions like this? Yes, rebelliousness is something that we can embrace in any workplace, no matter how traditional the workplace is. And in fact, as I was doing research for the book, I intentionally went to places that are more traditional and places that are maybe more creative and more innovative by default. And one of the inspiring stories for rebel talents actually comes from a very traditional place, which is traditional cooking in Italy. Italy is a place where there are lots of rules when it comes to cooking. And as you might know, as Italians, we also cherish our old ways. So it's very difficult to break away from traditions. And one of the inspiring stories from Italy is the story of an Italian chef whose restaurant became the best restaurant in the world in 2016. And also back to the top of the list this year in 2018. His name is Massimo Bottura. And he went to traditional Italian dishes and studied the recipe really, really carefully. But then he basically reinvented his own dishes and he's been incredibly successful. His restaurant also has three Michelin stars. So it's a great example of a person who went to traditions in a context that is very traditional and started asking questions. Why is it that we do things this way? Maybe it made sense 30 years ago, 40 years ago, but not now. So he got curious and started questioning the status quo. So I believe that rebelliousness is really something we can embrace, no matter how traditional the business is. You know, you told that story in the book, and you also, I think, 
got yourself a free trip home out of it, right? <laughs> Writing about the story, which I think is fantastic. But you actually worked there and, you know, we're actually a server and got the experience of seeing people's reactions to this. And I, and I wasn't like thinking that this is where you were going to go, but it makes me ask another question related to this, which is that we think people want the tradition, but obviously his restaurant is number one in the world. And he sort of you know, scrambled up tradition by coming up with innovation. And so how does that, you know, square with humans nature of resisting change and not wanting things to break from tradition? How did yeah. he run that? How did he do that is a very good question. At first, the East restaurant was actually not successful. So in the first few years, he really struggled to keep the restaurant open. And the main reason for it is that tradition-bound Italians weren't happy with what he was doing. So they weren't happy that it, he, were, he was there inventing recipes that really, if you look at these dishes, they're beautiful, they're delicious, but they look nothing like the type of recipes that I grew up with uh, when I was little. And so at first, he really struggled, but he stayed persistent. In fact, when I asked him what was really critical and key to his persistence, he told me a story about a summer that he spent at Il Bulli, at the time a very successful restaurant in Spain. And what he learned from the chef and owner there was really to bring his ideas out with authenticity. So he talked about learning to feel his fire and bring it out in his dishes. And in fact, after the summer when he went back to Modena, where the restaurant is, he basically sold everything he had. He got some money from the parents of of his wife, and then he invested everything in the restaurant to keep it open. And a few months later, the first Michelin star restaurant arrived, and then the second one and the third. And you know the story, 2016, first time that an Italian restaurant reached the top of the list. So his story is an interesting one because he's basically relying on one of the rebel talents, authenticity, as a way for him to persist through the struggles and then ending up with a very successful restaurant. So it wasn't easy at first. <laughs> People were not happy and fighting against a person who was trying to change the status quo. It requires some courage. And a lot of persistence, right? And a lot of persistence. You just can't give up the first time somebody says, you know, you've broken with tradition, so we're not going to come here. It sounds like exactly. that was a big component of this. I want to transition you. The whole time I was reading your book, I was just completely convinced that this is really a book that every leader needs to read. And your point of view on leadership is particularly intriguing to me. So I want to bring our audience in on this and ask you, what are some of the ways that you encourage workplace managers to be rebels, knowing that by doing so, they're going to end up with far greater performance? I would say three things. One is for them to change their mindset. The second one is to find opportunities to model behavior. And the third one would be to really encourage it. And maybe let me talk a little bit about each of the three. In terms of mindsets, one of the beautiful quotes that throughout the years stayed with me is the quote from one of the Italian sculptors and artists, Michelangelo Buonarroti. Probably a lot of listeners are familiar with his work. He described the sculpting process as a process whereby the artist releases an ideal figure from which the block of stone in which is lumbers. And it really is interesting as a as a quote and as a way of thinking about sculpting. 
you made me think about how leaders could think of the people who work in their businesses the same way as people who have lots of talent. They have a signature strength and their job as a leader is to really bring those strengths out, make sure that they have the opportunity to rely on their talents. And I think that requires a shift in mindset because as as we were seeing earlier, sometimes we don't think of rebels in positive ways. And sometimes we also don't think of people as having all the talents that I talk about in the book. So that shift in mindset, I think, is very important. And then they need to model behavior. I think of, as an example, when Greg Dyke arrived at the BBC in early 2000, he found a very troubled organization. And he needed to change the organization. He needed to engage the people who had lost trust in the organization. And when he decided the plan of actions and the fact that he wanted to signal change, he distributed yellow cards (laughs) resembling penalty cards uh, (laughs) that soccer referees use when they're warning a player. And if a staff member saw that someone was trying to block a good idea, he or she should wave the yellow card in the air and speak up. This is what Dyke told his team. He really wanted employees to use the card to, and I'm going to use these words, uh, to cut the crap and make it happen. And so this was a great way for him to model behavior that was rebellious, in a sense, to do something different for the organizations. And rebellious behavior is quite contagious. So I think it's important for leaders to really model the type of behaviors that they want to see in their followers, if you will. And then they need to encourage it. So think about one of the talents that I talk about in the book, curiosity. It's a great talent to encourage. And so leaders can do that very simply by starting to ask a lot of what if type of questions. So if we really want people to question the status quo or raise doubts about existing processes, maybe being the one who says, what if we were to do things a little bit differently is something that can really trigger and encourage others to be and stay curious. You know, in listening to you, I originally was thinking that it really was a mindset difference, but it's much more of a behavioral difference. It's a sort of reconstruction of what leadership is all about. And in your mind, it's identifying talents in people, which some people actually have a hard time doing. And I think you make this point in the book, which is that we are much more focused on what people's limitations are than we are on their strengths, right? And then you're saying not only do you see them, but that you cultivate them and you honor them. And then there's this big component of you have to be responsible. You have to like live this. Otherwise, people are going to see the duplicity here, right? So exactly. does it take a different kind of person to be this kind of a leader? Or can we all learn to do this? We can all learn to be rebels. In fact, to me, living like a rebel is really a matter of trying little things. So if I were to think about my rebellious behavior, we think about wearing real sneakers in formal settings or making sure that I use yes and technique in conversation rather than shutting ideas down. So those are small behaviors. But Being a rebel also means having a broader commitment to exploring ways of being in the world that may at first feel wrong. 
it feels uncomfortable to go against current practices or to be the one who raises an idea that is different from the one that is being discussed. So to me, it requires a shift in mindset. So really realizing that rebels can be good for the world, uh, changing behaviors, so picking up these new habits and routines of being rebellious, and then really being committed to it being okay, feeling uncomfortable as we're trying to produce positive change. Is that the reason you wear the red shoes, the red sneakers in formal attire, just to give yourself and cultivate it to make yourself more comfortable with it, right? Yeah, I felt very inspired and humbled by many of the people I've met as I was working on the book project and the research behind it. And so I am definitely not a rebel, but based on the lessons that I've learned and what I've written, I'm really trying my best to become one, to become an effective one. And so it starts with small behaviors and also with this broader commitment. You know, it's interesting because in social media, I see a lot of the same ideas being passed along. And the people who seem to have the most compelling audience and the most engagement are the ones who really stick their necks out and say something that's more authentic, original and courageous. Right. So we really do admire these people. It plays out in real life. At the same time, coming from a corporate environment in my past life, I'm not so sure that we were always I think we kind of pushed back on people who were just sort of not towing the line, if you will. So, mm-hmm. you know, do, do you think most organizations are ready for this? I think that if you were to ask most corporate leaders what kind of employees they really want in the organizations, you would get almost the same answer from everybody, that they really want creative workers, they want innovative people, they want people who think outside the box, who speak the truth to power. We're always looking for better ways to get things done. But this is what they say. And then Mm -hmm. when you look at their actions, they're actually quite different. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at the data I collected or that other colleagues have collected, what you see is that no matter what industry or job you're looking at, employees report feeling pressures to follow very well-established norm and common practices in their organizations. So they basically report being frustrated by the lack of opportunity to speak their minds or to bring their ideas forward or to really change the status quo. So I think there is a fear in leader. And part of the excitement of writing this book is to make sure that he ends up in the hands of many, many leaders such that they see the business case for rebelliousness. And hopefully, like me, they're going to feel inspired by other leaders that I talk about in the book. Well, you know, I, I remember working with some fellow leaders and recalling some of them sort of being wallflowers, if you will, that, you know, they're like hiding against the wall, waiting for other people to take <laughs> action before they, you know, assert themselves and like, that's the way I'm going, just like he yeah. is, you know, <laughs> instead of doing it on their own. And, and that's obviously weak. And ultimately, people don't really admire that. So I think this is resonating really strongly for me. So I'm kind of hoping it is for everybody else. Perhaps the most interesting story that you told in the book, because of the history of it, because somebody thought to do this so long ago, it has to do with this company that's Italian, now technology company, originally a typewriter company, Olivetti. Mm-hmm. And you wrote about this. They started making typewriters in the early 1900s. The father started the company. The son came in and made some massive changes to how things would be managed. And Talk to us about this. Tell this story. 
and tell us about this Adriano. Like you is one of my favorite examples from the book. It's a really great story of a person who, before becoming the CEO of the company and taking over his father, actually worked in the factory. And so he got to see what it means to be there for hours doing the work. And he noticed that there were lots of opportunities for improvement. And what is important is that, as you said, this was a time where Taylorism was much in the air. So it was all about making sure that workers get specialized and we get the best out of them in terms of allowing them to be productive. So work is specialized and probably people are working long hours and the work is very monetized or it's very monotonous. And what Adriano did instead, he started thinking about ways in which he wanted workers to really feel a sense of pride in their work and also a sense of curiosity. So some of the things that he did were so lunch used to be one hour and it extended it <laughs> to two hours so one hour was for eating and the second hours he used to say it's for eating culture so during the second hours people could go to the library that he created in the factory or they could listen to talk musing or poetry from people that he brought into the organizations like famous poets and famous writers or songwriters in Italy. And so he was really trying to broaden people's perspective and raise their curiosity, even if the work is work from a factory and even if it's many years ago rather than the type of workplace that we see today. So under Adriano, there were a lot of new factories that were created that included playgrounds for the children of the workers, libraries uh, filled with tens of thousands of books and magazines, and as I said, also rooms for film screening and debates that could happen during lunch. So is a person really understood the importance of engaging the individual, not only their minds, but their hearts, and making sure that people were happy as they were working rather than just executing the work. One of my favorite stories from what is done at the company is the story of a worker in particular. So at some point, some of his colleagues saw him leave the factory with pieces from work. So imagine pieces of iron and other machinery that he seemed to be taking home at the end of the day. And so they went to the CEO and they said, look, we have a thief's you need to fire the guy. And rather than firing him, Adriano Olivetti decided to meet with him. And then at the end of the meeting, rather than firing him, he actually promoted him to be the head of a new production process for trying out a new machine. And what he discovered by talking to the guy is that he was basically taking pieces home because he didn't have a enough time at work to try to build a new machine. And the machine actually became one of the most successful product at Olivetti, making them a lot of money. And so it's a great example of all sorts of practices that he introduced to engage people and to keep their mind curious. You actually just ended it with the word engage. And that's clearly what I think happened here. But there's so much information packed into this story, starting with your reference to Taylorism, which is one of the most inhumane ways of managing mm -hmm. people, right? And so 100 years ago, 
here's Adriano coming in saying, we're going to bring in poets and we're going to bring in a library. And there's got to be at least one person listening to this who's thinking that's absolutely stupid and absurd and <laughs> unnecessary and unproductive. Right. And yet it inspired somebody to take some parts home to do more work, to be completely, you know, to use my vernacular, to put their hearts into their work. And so this really worked. But did people think he was insane for doing this? And how did he justify it? And did it work? He got a lot of backlash. So I think at the time, a lot of the leaders in other businesses were looking at him and say, I, I really don't get why you're doing this. And he seems like you're missing out on the potential of using people's hands and mind for more hours of work and making them more productive. And I think he proved them wrong. I was actually reminded of Adriano Olivetti on a recent visit to a different organization in Italy. Again, it's a, in a beautiful part of it right outside of Perugia. And the CEO's name is Brunello Cucinelli. So he's adding a rather different company. So they're in the luxury clothing type of business. And as we were there for the interview with a colleague of mine, at 5.30, we were still talking to him and the lights went off. And so we looked at each other and Cucinelli said, it's 5.30, people are leaving. And so he reminded me of Adriano Olivetti because, again, a lot of the people work in the factories or they're producing clothes, but they work from 8 to 5.30 with a 90-minute lunch break. A lot of leaders that I told this story to would say, why would you waste an hour and a half for lunch when you can eat at work at your desk in five to 10 minutes? And I think it's a different way of thinking about the fact that Work should be a source of inspiration. It should give us dignity rather than thinking of work as something that needs to happen. And that if you look at it, it is a source of frustration for a lot of people. So if I were to hand you the keys to a big company and say, go run it, Francesca, would you, you know, just to pin this down, how much of what Adriana was doing would you implement? I think that his way of making people feel that their work should be respected the way he was broadening their perspective by having, I love the idea of having a library at work. I think that's truly fantastic. I think I would try to do a mixture of what he did and what Massimo Bottura is really trying to get the same type of principles of making sure that people are engaging the work that they do, that they have perspective, that they work collaboratively together. It seems to me that a lot of what it was doing was right. And that doesn't mean to keep workers in the factory for longer hours. In fact, he shortened the amount of time that they were at work. Um, and making sure that when they're there, they're giving their best because they feel that they're trusted and they feel that they're respected. That changes the model. And that's kind of the ambition of this podcast, but in a really brilliant way. So I'm incredibly grateful for the way you just articulated all that. And I, I do want to go back to something that you wrote about in the book and that I mentioned a few moments ago, which is that we have, we as managers do have, and, and I would suspect also, unfortunately, as human beings, 
we tend to call out the weakness of people. We kind of, you know, sort of have a dark side as human <laughs> beings where, you know, little snide remarks or, you know, boy, that person, they don't really do that very well. And we don't really emphasize the strengths. But you make a very clear point that that is a huge leadership limitation. So tell us what you would encourage managers to do in terms of really, truly focusing on strengths and how do you identify them and what do you do with them? If you think about the great coaches, they do focus on strengths rather than weaknesses. And I think we have a lot to learn from them. A lot of what happens in organization is about finding a weakness, pointing to it, and then figuring out how to fill the gap. But if you look at the research, that's totally wrong. The playing to our strengths, which is a way for us to feel authentic, is really powerful. There are all sorts of benefits that come with it. And what is interesting is that we seem to have the wrong intuition about it. And in fact, there is research that suggests that one of the reasons why we might be so focused on weaknesses, even as you said, as individuals, is because we believe that we have the opportunity to change our weaknesses and improve on our weaknesses more so than to our strengths. And if you look at the data, it's just the opposite. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I think there is an opportunity here to shift our thinking when it comes to our strengths and playing to our strengths. And again, leaders, I think, have an amazingly wonderful opportunity here in terms of first giving employees opportunities to identify their strengths. As it turns out, sometimes we don't even know not only what we're good at, but what gives us energy. What is the thing that we would keep on doing just because we really feel energized when we play to our strengths? And I've conducted quite a bit of research on this idea. So, for example, in a research project, my colleagues and I looked at a group of leaders of national and local government agencies across the globe, and we gave them the opportunity to reflect each morning for a few days on their signature strengths. So really what they felt they gave them energy at work and how it is that they could use them. And then we looked at how others saw their strengths. So we reached out to people in their networks, both their personal and professional networks, and asked them for stories when they saw these people at their best. And then we gave them the stories. And it was a wonderful eye-opening experience for them where they really came up with the different profiles for what they thought their signature strengths were. And then we looked at them working together, working with others, working in teams, performing at work. And what we found is that the people who had the opportunity to reflect on their strengths were much better in their jobs. They were more open in conversations with others. They were more likely to have productive disagreements. They were better in terms of performing on their jobs. So I think the first opportunity for leaders is to really give employees these opportunities to identify and reflect on their strengths. And then they should try to the extent that it is possible to tailor the jobs to the employees' strengths. And this, I think, requires a little bit of flexibility. So there are more organizations that allow for that flexibility. So if people want to move around a little bit, they can do so based on their passions and their strengths rather than a job description that really boxes them in a particular role or position. 
you covered a lot of ground <laughs> in your answer. And I will say that, you know, the guest that just preceded you was Jim Harder, who is the longtime mm-hmm. head of research at Gallup. And their research shows that when you focus on people's strengths, that those people who get to use their strengths most of the time are four times more engaged. So obviously yep. they're, you know, that love of the work and productivity is there. And I also love that exercise that you mentioned and hope that somebody listening to this would try this, where you bring your team together and you ask others to say, like, for example, Francesca, tell Mark some of the things that you think are his greatest strengths. Because I think it's not only reinforcing, but it's encouraging and it inspires people to know that other people see something in them. And sometimes they don't even see it in themselves. So I think that just touched me. I just think it's really great. And then the other thing that you mentioned has to do with variety and giving people some variety in their day. And we know that you get numb doing the same thing all day long Mm -hmm. and that variety rejuvenates. And most people think along the lines of Adriano that, you know, if you take people off the machinery for five minutes, they're going to be less productive. But if you invest in people and give them opportunities to do something different, they actually become more engaged, more enthusiastic, more energetic, all the wonderful things that we want. That's right. And sometimes, by the way, there might be leaders out there who think, okay, but I'm in a context where variety is just not possible. People need to follow a certain set of steps in their work. So how do I use this? And I could say that I was, again, eager to find those contexts and see, even in situations where the job is very scripted or the is in fact a sequence of step, how you can still allow for some variety. So for example, with a colleague of mine, I've done some research in a Japanese bank where variety meant, so these are people who process loan applications, variety in that case meant picking up different parts of the loan application process in a way that was always different. Or we went to a very successful fast food chain in Tennessee in West Virginia. Their name is Pulse Southern Service. Again, in this case, people follow sequence of steps. They need to follow on the different stations. But every day that they arrive at work, they learn about the sequence that they're going to follow. So there is variety and there is some novelty in the work that they do, even in a context that seems very scripted, even in a context where you wouldn't expect to find rebelliousness. I had a woman who was a manager working for me years ago, and she came to me. She's very, very high performing. This is a financial institution. She was one of the top managers in the company. And she asked me if she could plan my team meetings once a month. <laughs> and of course, my initial reaction was like, no, because I mean, she <laughs> called me out for it. She goes, you think I'm going to be less productive? And I said, well, yeah, pretty much. You know. And she says, well, what if I promised that I would do a good job for you and still you know, do these meetings. And I said, well, why do you want to do this? And she says, well, because I love doing meetings and we'd get to work a little bit more. And it's just fun for me. So I acquiesced. Years later, after we weren't working together anymore and I moved on to a different role, I ran into her and she said to me, she says, I never told you that while I was working for you, your peers were trying to recruit me away. Mm. And the only reason I didn't, because they were offering better branches, more, you know, more visibility, you name it, whatever, you know, something that seemed sexier at the time. (laughs) And but she said it was because you were willing to give me that extra opportunity that I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere else. So it, it created loyalty, which is, you know, sort of an amazing outcome. 
Yeah. And we love to be challenged in our work. And so variety often brings that aspect. It challenges us just because we might not expect the order in which things comes to us or the type of tasks that we're going to be able to take on. So great example, great story. Wonderful. And one of the things about your book was it seemed so topical. It just seemed like, you know, you you got the book out right at the time that things, things were actually happening. And I'm really familiar with the fact that Deloitte, which I find interesting in itself because it's a CPA firm for all intents and purposes, they took this radical step by eliminating the traditional employee review system. And basically what they did was they said, what we want to do is we want to have more constant communication with our employees rather than wait till the end of the year to slam them with what they're not doing. Let's give them constant constant feedback, positive, constructive, what have you, so that people always know where they stand. And in my mind, breaking up a standing tradition like that is truly rebel leadership. Having the courage to say, you know what, we're just not going to do this process anymore in the whole firm. And I don't know how many employees they have, but it's tens of thousands. So it was quite a risk, right? So tell us about what they did, what influenced them to make the change, and what have they learned? Like you, I was struck by the fact that when I think about the nature of the work or when I think about students who go into consulting into companies like theirs or their competitors, usually the comments that you hear is, this is something I'm going to do for a couple of years and then I'm going to get out. Or the job is often viewed as very transactional. So you think about, in a sense, hours for money. And what this company was doing on a very large scale, since they have more than $35 billion in revenue and over 240,000 employees, Mm. what they decided to do is to change their system because in the end, they thought that the company was failing in the ultimate goal of developing stronger employees and leaders. So they thought about the fact that investing in people means allowing them to receive feedback that is timely and feedback that they can work on. And so starting in 2014, they ran a small pilot to test a new performance systems where basically, if you will, and in simple words, they didn't tangle the performance part with the development part. And so for development, they introduced this idea of coaching. So every person now works at Deloitte as a coach, and it's a relationship that needs to happen in the sense that you're supposed to meet with your coach at least every other week. And the conversation needs to be focused on strength and how the coach can help the person being coached rely on his or her strength more often. And that might mean even moving around the organizations a bit or getting to know people who can help the person use their strength more often. So it's quite a remarkable example of reliable leadership, as you said, given how large the organization is and given also the nature of the work. And it seems like part of the inspiration for doing that is all the data that we were talking about earlier about the power of strengths. They also have data that suggests that when people play to their strengths, they're much more happy in their work, they're more productive, they're more creative. And so they wanted to find a ways in which people really had the opportunity to play to their strengths and develop their strengths and reflect on their strengths with their coach. 
I want to dig into this idea of a coach because there was um, actually one of the most successful, the most successful article I've ever written has to do with how to manage millennials. And Mm. it's tied to a lot of the Gallup research. And one of the things that became very, very clear was that, and having raised a, a millennial, I know this directly, that they had a lot of coaches growing up. They had more coaches than you and I had. And so this notion that managers are really coaches is a major mindset change, but really is what this workforce is looking for. They want people to teach them, show them, encourage them, but also challenge them to get better. And it was interesting yesterday, my best friend was telling me this story and um, I won't tell you if it's uh, a woman or a man or where it is to protect his innocence, his innocence. So there you go. So I blew it already. Um, But his company took on a really, a very compelling new client and the boss took it from him instead of saying, this is your job and this is what you're supposed to do. So they they took the cool opportunity for themselves as opposed to giving it to where it really kind of rightfully belonged. Mm -hmm. And that's not a decision a coach would make. A coach doesn't go in in the last two minutes of a game and say, you know, you're sitting on the bench, I'm going to score the winning shot here, right? So speak, speak to that for me. It's interesting because one of the things that we found, this is follow-up research that I didn't talk about in the book, but we were working with Deloitte in trying to answer the question, what makes a good coach? And so they were willing to share some data to really try to understand what makes this relationship powerful. And one of the things that we found that was maybe intuitive but surprising to both them and us is that coaching relationship seems to be the most effective when there isn't a lot of distance between the person doing the coaching and the person being coached, meaning really level of experience or title, if you're thinking about that in terms of an organizational hierarchy. And what is interesting about that is that the more we become distanced, so I may be really at the top of the organizations or you're at the bottom, you also lose the perspective. We seem to not really understand. We forget how we felt <laughs> to be at that stage stage of our career. And so we are less able to really give good guidance, advice and listen properly. And so good coaches seems to be people who really are close to you in terms of understanding your experiences and tailoring the suggestions, advice and help that they give to what you're experiencing right now at work. Excellent. Transitioning a little bit here. And one of the things that came up in your book has to do with being curious. And it's interesting because there's two things that have come up in this podcast, coincidentally, the most. And one is Abraham Lincoln. And (laughs) we haven't done the heartbeat round yet. So hopefully that doesn't tip an answer for you. But the other is this idea. In fact, Jeff Colvin from Fortune Magazine, Adam Bryant from formerly from the New York Times, Kim Powell, CEO next door. These all have said that what really truly distinguishes great leaders is this incredible curiosity. And then you say in your book that, it's hard to believe, but that we stopped being curious around four or five years old. So tell us about the importance of curiosity. And if we really have a natural inclination to stop being curious at four or five, how do you open that up? 
it's interesting because I have three small children. One is five, two and a half, and one. And at least the five and two and a half who can talk, it's a constant questioning. <laughs> it's why is it that the sky is blue? Why is it that we receive receipt? Why is it that we need to leave the house we close on? It's constant questioning. And it makes me go back to my time when I was a child and I was doing the same. It's mm-hmm. common for every children to have that type of curiosity and question asking towards everything that is part of their life. But then compare that to the experience of work. I don't have (laughs) the same type of images of colleagues or people working in the administration asking so many white type of questions. And it's interesting that organizations often shut down curiosity rather than encouraging it. I collected some data since I was really fascinated by this idea that curiosity is not something that seems to be kept alive in a lot of organizations. And again, leaders say, that they treasure inquisitive minds, that they really see the value of having a lot of curious people in their organizations. And in fact, when I surveyed different leaders, that's the common answer, that most people, most leaders, when they think about new innovations or new ideas in their organizations, they point to the curious people. But then when you actually survey employees, and I've surveyed more than 3,000 of them, from a wide range of firms and industry, only about 24% reported feeling curious in their job on a regular basis. That's too little of a percentage. And I think it's a missed opportunity. It's really when uh, leaders and organizations and characters that we see a lot of good coming out of people, it's more innovative type of behaviors, more creative thinking. I've conducted research that shows that when people stay curious, they actually make better decisions and they work more collaboratively with others. So to your question of what can we do to make sure that we stay curious or we regain our curiosity, One of the simple strategy is to have learning goals. So I think most of us have some type of performance goals or sometimes even leaders are the ones setting performance goals for us. But what about also setting learning goals? I had the opportunity to talk and interview to Captain Chelsea Sally Sallenberger, the captain who ditched a plane with 155 passengers in the Hudson River a few years back. So many of the listeners, in fact, I think all of the listeners yeah. are very familiar <laughs> I, I with this story. I will meet the guy who doesn't know this story. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Ex- exactly. <laughs> but his example to me was a striking one and his example of a rebelliousness since at a time where most of us would have gone to the obvious answer of landing a plane at the closest airport, he thought creatively about what to do and he asked a lot of good questions. If you look at the transcript from the accident, he was considering a lot of options. But what I've learned when I talked to him is that he described having a real passion for continuous learning, that throughout his life, he had a lot of experience, but he used a lot of opportunity to learn as much as possible. And what is also probably even more interesting is despite the fact that he was acquiring a lot of knowledge and acquiring a lot of experience, he was able to use that as a signal that there was more to learn. So I think that having learning goals keep us curious, but also realizing that there is more to learn. And with that, we stay humble. 
So I now have sometimes why days where I remind myself to go around the office and make sure that I ask questions like what if or why is it that we're mm-hmm. doing this or just ask more questions to investigate the topic a little bit better or maybe just to learn more about what's happening at work or even about my colleagues. Two more things that you mentioned in the book about Captain Sullenberger. One was, and I didn't know this, I'm sure most people don't, that he was actually a Vietnam pilot. So this was mm-hmm. not somebody who was just a professional pilot. He's been doing this his whole life and career, 40 years, I think. And what he said was that he uses every flight to learn something, to your point, right? So he's yep. intentional about it. The other thing, totally unrelated, that just completely speaks to the character of this person and why he was, I don't know, there's something about this person, about why this happened to him and how he could possibly pull this off, speaks to who he is deep down. And he not only made sure, so here's this plane sitting in the cold Hudson. It was January or February, very, very cold water. And you would think, hey, I just landed the plane. Like I can get, I can get the hell off the plane here and go on, right? But he didn't. He not only waited to get everybody off and helped everybody off, but then he went back into the plane, walked all the way to the back to make sure there wasn't a single person on there and that he was the last person to get off. And I just thought, wow, how many people on the planet are that great as a human being, you know, really, really magnificent story. Yeah, a lot of humility. And it's interesting because that seems to be a feature that I see in a lot of rebel leaders that is not that they have a job description. And then because of their power or title, there are things that they're not going to be doing. Often the things that others don't expect them to do they are the last to leave the ship. So one of the things that I saw at the restaurant at Ostria Francescana from the chef is that one of the first things that he does when he arrives at the restaurant is taking a broom, going outside and cleaning the street or being the first one to jump on the delivery truck and helping to unload the trucks. He doesn't have to do that. And as you watch him do stuff like that, this is what the people there told me is you start wondering, why is it that he's doing that? But the second question is, why is it that I'm not doing that? Mm -hmm. And so you follow. So I think their humility is actually contagious. Well, it goes back to what you said at the very beginning of your upbringing, humility versus arrogance, you know, not really your upbringing, but more specific to this idea of what a rebel leader is, is that it's not arrogance. And here's Sullenberger showing you that for real. Francesca, I want to transition now, we have something we call the heartbeat round. It's a tradition on the podcast where we ask our guests a series of rapid fire questions and they just give us a deeper glimpse into you. And so after each question, just give me the first answer that comes to your mind and answer each one in a heartbeat. So you ready? I'm ready. In the spirit Uh, of rebelliousness, sometimes I give you two answers. Oh, but I'll be quick. That's fantastic. Okay. All right. So uh, in your native language, pronti partenza via. So number one, someone we all know you think is a great rebel leader. Film director Eva DuVernay and the president and co-founder of Pixar Animation Studios at Catmull. Mm-hmm. Great book, by the way. Besides Italy, and you better get this one right. You don't know which bias I have here, but I have mm-hmm. one. Besides Italy, who makes the better pizza, New York or Chicago? There is only one answer. Definitely Italy. Oh, no, but who makes it? You, you you have to be the rebel and weigh in on this one. It's important to me. New York. I actually really like the deep pizza in Chicago. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Adjective most people would use to describe you. 
hardworking, but if you were to ask my parents, they would say stubborn. Mm. A book that profoundly changed your life. It's the book that my husband was writing before we got married. Mm. He talked to me about it when we met the first time at Logan Airport. And it's the reason why I wrote to him a few months later to know how the book was going and whether the book was out. And the rest is history. Wow. What's the name of the book? Well, he never finished it because it was a book about failed relationship. And his side of the story is that he then got to a good one with me. And so he didn't have to finish the book. (laughs) Yeah, That's great. Meditation or mindfulness practice, yes or no? I don't use them, but you find reflection and thinking time in my calendar. One success trait you consistently find in Harvard University students. I'll give you two, curiosity and persistence. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? New York Times and New Yorker. World leader of any time in history that you would call the greatest? Now, I'm going to change my answer based on what you said earlier. And in, oh, thinking about, <laughs> in thinking about all the research that I've done for the book, these days, actually, my answer to this question would be Napoleone Bonaparte. Excellent. Word that represents the best synonym for heart? I would say connections. Skill improvement you're working on right now? I'm trying to become a better rebel. I'm learning how to play the piano, and I'm trying to improve my Italian accent. A little little improvement. (laughs) The behavior that derails most leadership careers? Arrogance and this sense that experience translates into knowing it all. The life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier? How humbling parenting is. When I had my first child, I wrote a thank you note to my parents, thanking them for all the hard work that I didn't realize they put into making sure that I grew up with all the proper lessons and the same for my sister and brother. I love that. What you consider to be our greatest collective weakness as workforce leaders today? The fear to let go to put more control in the hands of those who work for us and trust that they'll do a good job. One rule we commonly find in society that you urge us all to break. Having white milk for breakfast. As it turns out, breakfast (laughs) can come in all colors and tastes about the same and you'll just start the day smiling. And the quote that best captures your life philosophy. This day, a quote that I really love comes from Chef Massimo Bottura, and he goes like, you don't let tradition bind you, you let it set you free. Love that. Molto, molto bene, Francesca. So (laughs) thank you for sharing these wonderful answers. And I'm just going to admit to you that I'm really disappointed that this can't go on forever. I had a Stanford professor recently tell me, he goes, nobody listens to podcasts more than 30 minutes, but they're going to listen to this one. And as we near the end of this, it's another tradition where we basically just turn it over to you as the guest. And so to set this up, Is there a component of your book or philosophy that we didn't bring up that you really want to punctuate? And if we were your students about to head into the real world as leaders, what insight would you most want us to remember? I am going to answer, actually, I'm going to give you one answer for both questions and is finding ways to learn from improv comedy. This is something that I've learned as I was working on the book. And I feel like a lot of the core principles that improv comedy teaches us 
can really make us better leaders, but also better people in general. So there are three core principles. One is always to have an attitude of acceptance towards others and their ideas. Sounds quite important to me Mm -hmm. uh, to always come from the standpoint of building on others' contributions. So there is this principle of the yes and whenever you're working on a scene or an exercise in improv rather than judging others' ideas or suggestions and shutting them down. So that is also an important one. And third, there is always this idea when you're working on a scene or on an exercise of making your partner feel good and look good. And again, what if as leaders we took that on that our job is to make sure that we create the right environment for people to really feel good about what they do and who they are at work. So that is true of leadership. That seems to be true of us as parents and also as friends, colleagues, and partners. So I'm hoping (laughs) that some people are going to engage with the ideas in the book, uh, some of which are on the chapter on novelty where I talk about improv comedy. Well, it is a fantastic book and I absolutely recommend everybody read it. Thank you so much, Francesca. It has been an extreme honor to have you on the podcast. You are absolutely wonderful. And on behalf of all of our listeners who surely feel as grateful to you as I do, grazie. (laughs) Prego. Thank you so much for the great questions. You're very welcome. And the great conversation. I loved it. Best to you. Thank you, Mark. Before we close, I want to say thanks to all of you who've reached out to me with feedback on what's still a very new podcast. Two things that keep coming up. First, many of you said that the guests have been extraordinary, and to that I wholeheartedly agree. And just as it was when I ended my interview with Francesca a few moments ago, I'm always filled with incredible gratitude for the knowledge and generosity each guest has brought. And I'm also thrilled that all of you get to listen in. And coming as a surprise to me, several people have said that they listened to the podcast a second time in order to take useful notes. So once again, that's really encouraging feedback because it suggests that the guests and their content are useful to you. So please keep the feedback coming. I really welcome it. And as a favor to me personally, please also tell your friends and colleagues about the Lead from the Heart podcast. That would help us so, so much. And as always, I can't end without thanking my supporting crew, my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz, and website designer, Randy Yon. And until next time, I leave you with the reminder that when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. 